The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. All right, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so thankful to be here, and this is just such a privilege to be able to share God's word. This is my favorite thing in the world to do is to dig into scripture and then um, learn myself and then be able to share it with other women. This is the thing that I am most passionate about in life. And so thank you for giving me this opportunity. I'm very humbled by it. And um, I feel like I need to give a little bit before I start. Uh, so obviously, do I have a, my title up there? The Broken Pieces of Our Stories, uh, Principles from the Book of Ruth. Uh, I feel like before I start, I need to give a little bit of background of my own personal relationship with the book of Ruth, okay? Uh, so I don't know about many, uh, all of you. It might, it, it's probably a familiar story to many of you who have grown up in the church. Uh, for me, I went to Baptist Bible College, okay? And I don't know if anyone else has that same background as me, but you need to know <laughs> that the time period that I was in Baptist Bible College, uh, there was just this... I don't know, this stigma or this idea, if you were a woman in Baptist Bible College, your sole purpose for being there was to get your MRS degree, your missus, become a missus. And so the, the slogan was, get a ring before spring or your money back, you know, this, this type of idea uh, in Baptist Bible College for single women. And uh, our, our goal in life there was to hashtag find my Boaz, right? And so <laughs> the book of Ruth... You know, it is a love story. The main characters are Ruth and Boaz. And the, it's like the story of Ruth became our guidebook and our inspiration and our hope for finding our Boaz, you know, before we graduate from Bible college, because that's what we were meant to do as single women in the church. And um, so that's kind of funny. So was, I, as I was preparing for this, I was like, huh, I wonder if that's still a thing. So I started Googling and I started going through social media and uh, sure enough, I go to uh, Instagram, because back in the day it would be like, you know, you'd see girls, we didn't really have Instagram when I was in Bible college, but there was like Facebook, I think that was the beginning of like the selfie movement, and it was like, if you put a really cute selfie of yourself, but then was like, hashtag waiting for my Boaz, it was like really spiritual, and like also like kind of like this, you know, like underground dating tool to get guys to notice you, I don't know, um, so I went to Instagram, and I was like, oh, is this still a thing? Sure enough. 48,000 uses of the hashtag Boaz that are somehow related to giving single women hope for finding the man of their dreams. That is no joke, 48,000. Uh, there was actually an Instagrammer whose profile was called Looking for Boaz, and her or he, I don't know who was behind it, but there, it was all these inspirational quotes and pictures for women just waiting for their Boaz, looking for their Boaz. Uh, there is a book. I have not read it, so if you have read it, you can tell me if it's good or bad. I have no idea. This is not a commentary on the book, but it's actually called, God, where is my Boaz? Uh, so this, this is still a thing. So for me, um, I'm, not, I'm not making fun of this. I'm not making light of this because surely, um, you know, the book of Ruth, it is a love story. It is a beautiful love story. And surely there are some gems of truth that single women can glean from this book. No pun intended. Glean. Get it? <laughs> I had to explain that to my husband. So he's like, I haven't spent a lot of time in the book of Ruth either. So I was like, okay. She's gleaning in the fields. Anyways, 
there are for sure truths that single women can glean from this book when they're letting God write their love story, right? Um, but I actually didn't find my Boaz in Bible college, <laughs> and didn't find him shortly thereafter. It was 10 years later, you know, that I find my, found my hashtag Boaz uh, in secular, you know, university grad school. Uh, so, but during those 10 years, there were several points in time where I was like, wow, like maybe I'm not going to get married. You know, like who am I to be like, oh, I'm waiting for my Boaz. Well, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not, maybe there is no Boaz and that's okay. And so the book of Ruth became like not needed. I was like, well, I don't need to, you know, if I don't have a love story happening, I don't need, I don't need this book of Ruth. So, so you have to understand my relationship with the book of Ruth has really <laughs> changed over the years, and it, it didn't become significant to me um, until I, I grew up and I was older, and God took me through some, some dark valleys and some challenging times. I actually had nothing to do with my personal love story, but circumstances where I needed to get a better grip on my theology and circumstances where I had to understand more deeply God's overarching plan of redemption for his people and how that impacts me personally in the day-to-day and in the trials of life. And so it was at that point that the story of Ruth just came to life for me in such a deep and personal way. Um, And so these are the things that I hope to share today, and I hope that it'll be encouraging to you. It's been encouraging to my heart. If anything, it'll be encouraging to my heart again. Um, but, But I just hope to share, once again, just how the broken pieces of our life connect to God's overarching story of redemption. So I know Mallory already prayed, but I need prayer again, so I'm gonna open up in prayer, and then, then we'll jump into the text. Lord, I thank you for your love and for your goodness and for your redemption. Um, Lord, we are so unworthy of your love and your redemption. So Lord, we just pause. We thank you for that. I pray, Lord, now as we look into your word that, uh, Lord, help me not to get in the way, um, but that you'll just speak through me, that you'll help me to point these ladies to scripture, and Lord, that we will be encouraged, that we will have a, a greater grasp of who you are and how that impacts us. We love you. Pray us in your name. Amen. All right, if you do have your Bibles, if you can open up to the book of Ruth, that would be great. Uh, Or your uh, mobile devices. You can do that as well. Now, I am actually going to talk through the entire book of Ruth. (laughs) So I only have a 45-minute time slot. So I promise you I'm not going to pull it past your Jonathan. This is not going to be a sermon, an exposition, you know, I'm not going to, an expository sermon going, you know, verse through verse through the book of Ruth because we don't have time. Uh, So hopefully I can help pull the pieces together for this book, especially for those of you who this might be new for. Um, But I am going to go pretty quickly and look more so at, at an aerial view of the book and then in the end, tie together some application points for us. So if you'll forgive me, I am going to go pretty quickly. I also go fast when I'm excited, so I'll try to slow down. Um, But we are going to be speeding through this book rather quickly. I do encourage you sometime this week to take time to sit down and read the entire book of Ruth in one sitting. It's meant to be read in one sitting. It's fairly short, so I encourage you to spend some time in the book of Ruth um, this week. Uh, But in the meantime, I'm just going to hit some key parts, talk about the main story, and then give some application in the 
the end. So first, if you find the book of Ruth, so it's in the Old Testament, and it comes after the book of Judges. So even though it's placed after the book of Judges, it actually occurs within the time frame of Judges. And so for those familiar with Old Testament history, this is actually a very dark time for the children of God. So the time period of the Judges, if you look in your Bible, so if you have a hard copy, if you're old school like me, you have a hard copy, you can look back at the page right before it, and it ends with Judges, that last verse says, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the, the children of God were in this cycle during the period of Judges where they would follow God, then they would turn from God, then they would get caught up in sin and idolatry. Some sort of major calamity would happen. They would repent. God, please deliver us. God sends a deliverer in the form of a judge. Children of Israel start serving God. And then it's not long before they're back into their sin and idolatry. And this cycle just repeats throughout the book of Judges. And so it's a very dark time for the children of Israel. And the book of Ruth happens right in the middle of this time period somewhere. Um, so as we go through, as I talk about the book of Ruth, let that sit in the back of your brain. Um, I, I'm going to have three main points as I go throughout the story. So the, the first one is this broken state of affairs. Then I'm going to talk about interceding kindness and then finish with rescue of redemption. So this first aspect, a broken state of affairs. So not only is this already set in the midst of a broken time period, but now we start to, we, we only get five verses in, and we get this picture of just utter brokenness for the characters that are involved. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm a teacher at heart, so I might make this a little interactive, so don't feel afraid if I ask a question so you can really answer it. Um, so let's look at these first five verses of Ruth. Um, in verse 1, what is, there's, there's a problem in the land. What is the problem in the land? You can also cheat by, I think I have a slide up there, so number one. Number one, there's famine. There's famine. Now, they are living in the land of Bethlehem, which ironically means the, the house of bread. There's no bread in the house of bread. And so Elimelech, so even though the, the story is, the book is called Ruth, uh, we see there are other characters involved. So we, we first meet Elimelech, and he is married to Ruth, or sorry, married to Naomi, okay, married to Naomi. Elimelech takes his family, because there is, there's famine, so there's Elimelech, uh, Naomi, and then they have two sons. Because there's famine in the land, they move away from their homeland, they leave the children of God, and they go to a place of Moab. Now, something significant about Moab is that this is not a place for the children of God. In fact, earlier in Israel's history, God says, hey, do not have anything to do with Moabites. They do not follow me. They are not God followers. Do not let your men intermarry with them. This is, they, are, they are not God followers. But yet Elimelech finds himself in the depths of despair because there is famine, and he knows that he needs to change, something needs to change. He takes his family to Moab. Well, what happens very quickly, I think it's verse 3, what happens to Elimelech? He dies. Okay, so we're only three verses in, and all of a sudden one of our main characters die. Okay, um, he dies. We don't know what happened. Elimelech, no longer in the picture. Uh, the sons marry Moabite women. So this is where we're introduced to Ruth and Orpah. And then 10 years go by, and something that's significant is they don't have any children. They don't have any children during that time. And then what happens in verse 5? The sons die. Malon and Killian die. Okay. 
And so we're only five verses in, and we just see all these broken pieces, all these broken pieces. And, and it just jumps into it so fast that it's easy for me to skip past that and get to the good stuff without stopping and being like, okay, Naomi's husband dies, and then her two sons die. There are no male heirs for this family. So back in that culture, not only was this like something that would cause their hearts to grieve, but as women without men there to take care of them and without a male heir to carry on their name, to hold on to their property, to meet their needs, like they're in a very helpless, hopeless, desolate state on top of all that grief. And so I just stop and think about, man, what, what would that have been like for these women to just find themselves in this state of helplessness and hopelessness and deep grief? And then what we see happen is this. Not only are they grieving, but this affects Naomi's heart in such a way that she begins to question the character of God. Have you ever been there? I have. Um, when I was little, uh, my mom was actually diagnosed with breast cancer when I was a little girl. And throughout that time period, um, God actually used her cancer in a way we did not know God um, in a saving way. But it was through her five years of battling cancer that God drew us to him we understood why Christ died on the cross. Finally, like the good news of the gospel made sense to us that, that Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And um, my mom went home to be with the Lord when I was 10 years old. But, but in the midst of that trial, even as a 10-year-old, I saw God's goodness and I saw God's character. And now looking back and as an adult, I'm like, that's, that's God's mercy in my life, that I was able to see God's goodness despite that grief. However, it wasn't until I was an adult that my dad gets diagnosed with cancer. And I'm like, okay, time out. You know, I, God, I saw what you did back there with my mom. That was hard for us, but I see your goodness in that because it drove us to the good news of Jesus, and now we are children of God. And, you know, I can look back at that and see the good. I can see God's goodness despite those brokenness, those broken pieces. But now, now, God, like, why does, why does my dad have to have cancer? He's a good man. We're a good family. We've been walking with you for years. And suddenly, so this is after my Bible college years. This is after several years of walking with the Lord. I suddenly find myself in a place where I'm questioning God's character, where I am asking really hard questions like, God, are you good? Or are you just cruel? And I'm ashamed to say that those are my thoughts, but I think if a lot of us were honest, like, we found ourselves in that place. Well, how do we know that Naomi is wrestling with that? Well, we have some pieces here that tell us. So first of all, um, there is this glimmer of hope where we see that God sends food back to his people. And so these women think, okay, we need to head, let's, Naomi says, I'm heading back to Bethlehem. There's food there now. Well, on their way, they don't get very far. And Naomi says, okay, Ruth, Orpah, like, just go back. Don't, don't come with me. Like, there's no point for you to come with me. 
Um, and that custom, if your husband died, you would then marry the brother. Well, there's no brothers. Naomi has no other children. They're all dead. There's no, there's no hope for these women um, to, to marry her offspring. So she says, just go back to your houses. Go back to Moab. Be with your families. Like, you're going to have a much better future there. And, and we start to see glimpses of Naomi's heart with her wrestle with God because we look at... Um, Verse 13, the end of verse 13, she says, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So she right away recognizes these hard things that are happening. This is God's hand against me. Uh, Orpah, she leaves. Ruth clings to her. And then once again, Ruth says, and here's another glimpse into just what is happening in Naomi's heart. She says, see your sister-in-law, this is in verse 15, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods, return after your sister-in-law. So in essence, Naomi is saying this, go back to your gods because my God ain't cutting it. So it's more than just my God has turn from me. She's sending her loved ones after false gods. So if that's any indication of where Naomi's confidence lies with her God and her questioning of God's character, like there it is. She sends them away after other gods. Ruth stays with her, and then here's our third indication of what's happening in Naomi's heart. Um, If you skip ahead down to verse 20, uh, they, they and they are back in Bethlehem. Naomi is there with Ruth, and the people are starting to recognize, oh, this is Naomi. Naomi's back. And what does Naomi say? She says, no, don't call me Naomi. She changes her name. So this is now affecting her identity. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And so here we are in the midst of this broken state of affairs with Naomi. My heart just goes out to her, where she has lost everything, and she is now claiming this as her identity, claiming this as her identity. But the story doesn't stop there. And I'm thankful for that. We're still very early in the story. The next part we see is interceding kindness. Interceding kindness. And so we see interceding kindness. This is such a beautiful, this is where the story gets so beautiful. Because we see God's kindness now towards these grieving women. And it's in the form of human agents. God starts to use characters within the story to interrupt that grief. To interrupt that hopelessness and bring kindness, and we're going to see eventually redemption. But first, let's look at these acts of kindness. So the first one we already talked about is Ruth, okay? So Ruth would have had a much better fortune just going back to Moab from an earthly standpoint. It would have made way more sense for her to go back to Moab. But what does she do? She stays. She stays with her mother-in-law in in a place where she has no other relatives. She doesn't know, all she knows is Moab, but yet she stays with her mother-in-law. Not only that, but remember, this is, they're in this helpless state of affairs. They don't really have a way to provide for their own needs. So what does she do? She goes and works in the field. So this is during the time of barley harvest. So workers would be in the fields um, harvesting this barley. And what Ruth would do was she would go to those fields and she would collect the leftovers so that they can have food. And she would work from morning till night collecting the, the sheaves that were left over, uh, bringing it home to her mother-in-law. 
And so we find out, this is where I enter the scene, Boaz. So in chapter 2, verse 2, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, and and glean among the, the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened, I love how it says that, and she happened to come to the part of the field, like it's just she happened to come, you know, um, she didn't just happen to come there, it's God's sovereignty and goodness, but she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech, and so this is significant because this is someone who we see there's, within that custom, this is someone who could step in and redeem this family and redeem their name, redeem their property, and so Ruth just happens to be in this field, um, so we start to see, um, you know, first, like I said, Ruth's kindness towards Naomi and staying with her, Ruth's kindness towards Naomi to go out and work in the field, um, which could have been dangerous to her, which I didn't really realize until revisiting this book, that um, she was putting herself in a very vulnerable position out there with these male workers um, who could have taken advantage of her, but yet she goes out there and she is providing for her family, and so her kindness intercedes on Naomi's behalf. And then we have Boaz enters the scene, and then we see Boaz's kindness towards Ruth as she's working in the field. So he notices her, and if you look through the verses um, 4 through 7, he starts to ask about her. So he says, who is this lady that I see in the field? He gets the backstory on her. And then because of that, we see in verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And so we see right away his kindness to her and saying, hey, stay in our field. I will make sure that you're safe. I'm going to make sure that no one touches you. I'm going to make sure that your needs are met. So stay here. Stay in my field. And then it goes on. He, his kindness continues. We see in verse um, 12, she says, you know, she's like, why are you doing this to me? And I love this. He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I love this verse because it's as if Boaz knows that his kindness towards Naomi is not just coming from him. This is God interceding through him and bestowing kindness upon this desolate woman, and I think that's just so beautiful. So he intercedes with his kindness Then he goes on in verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread, dip your morsel into the wine. So she sat behind the, beside the reapers and passed, he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, I love this, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Also, pull some more out from the bundles for her and leave them for her to glean. Do not rebuke her. So he's going up and above. He's like, hey, let's leave her more food. Let's, let's, let's continue to provide for her needs. And so we see his kindness towards her in meeting even those physical needs. Well, now we're going to transition into this redemptive part of the story, full redemption. And now this is the famous threshing floor scene, right? And once again, going back to my Bible college days, this became like the text for a debated topic on whether or not it was appropriate for women to ask men out on dates. And so this was kind of like our feminist charge of like, yeah, we can ask them out. 
I, I think that there's something bigger. <laughs> there's something bigger here for us to see, um, and that is the story of redemption. And so we see the story continues. Uh, she stays with them throughout the rest of their harvest, and then as they're on the threshing floor, this is like the end of the harvest time, her mother-in-law tells her, hey, this is what you need to do. Go down, chat with Boaz. And she basically goes down, and she basically asks him to marry her and become their redeemer. And Boaz says, yes. Boaz says, yes. And so he redeems them. There's that part where first he has to go check with another relative to make sure he doesn't want to claim them. And then there's the shoe situation that happens. Um, But in the end, we know what happens. He marries Ruth. He redeems them. So he now, if you look, I um, look, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, Chapter four, verse nine, after the shoe situation, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have brought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gates of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And so he steps in and he redeems them. He makes it possible for them to have an heir. He makes it possible for them to have their property. He um, restores their family. And now he is there as a provider. He's the kinsman redeemer. And then this is what I love about the story of Ruth. It actually circles back around and comes back to Naomi. Remember Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Mara. Look at how it ends with Naomi. In verse 14, um, let's go, I skipped an important part. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Now verse 14, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you. He is more to, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And so the story ends with this baby. The story ends with Naomi holding this baby and her experiencing redemption, restoration. And then the story gets crazier. Because then we go through all these names, and usually I check out when it comes to you, and so-and-so had so-and-so, and so and all these names, right? But let's check this out. So this baby's name is Obed, all right? And then verse 18 through 22 talks through his family line And who does his family line end with in the end of verse 22? David. Who comes from the line of David? Jesus. Jesus. The ultimate redeemer. And so we see the rescue of redemption is not just here for Naomi and Ruth. Like this leads to our redemption story. This points, the story is not just a love story, it is a beautiful love story, but it is a a picture of God's love story for his people who were helpless and hopeless 
unable to save ourselves, but God interceded with his son Jesus, and I am saved. I have a redeemer. And so that closes out the story of Ruth. Let's look at how this now affects my life. Where does this, where does this put me in my own life? How do I view my life circumstances in light of scripture and in light of God's story of redemption? Because if we were to stop and look at the pieces of our life, I think probably if we were honest, we would all be able to look at our lives and just find evidence of broken pieces somewhere, right? Um, what, do we, what do we do with those broken pieces? Like, what, do, what do we do with it? Like it's one thing to have a proper theology and to understand these things, but then what do, what do I do with all these pieces? What do I do with the broken pieces of my life? Do they matter? Do they connect to something bigger? And they do. They do. And so we see some points of application for us. So first of all, I have to understand um, that the most devastating broken piece of my story is that I am marred by sin and I need a savior. So before I start looking at all these other broken pieces of my life, I need to look at the most broken piece, the worst broken piece of all of them, is I am a sinner that cannot save myself. I am marred by sin. It is who I am. It is who I came into this world as a sinner. And I cannot get rid of that on my own. I can't do enough good in order to outweigh my bad. It's, it's, it's my identity is sin. And I'm hopeless and helpless. But what did we just talk about? God interceded. He sent Christ so that I can be redeemed. And so I have to step back. And I, I have to do this very often where I have to step back and just understand that in the midst of all these other broken pieces, the worst thing, that my, the worst broken piece is sin, and God has taken care of that. My greatest need is Jesus, and I have him. This has been something so special for me and Ray over the last two years. So we've only been married for about two and a half years now. Um, two months before we got married, uh, we actually found ourselves in the hospital, and Ray uh, got diagnosed with chronic myeloid leukemia. And so I'm sitting in that hospital room, you know, with my Boaz, getting ready to be married. And all of a sudden, the doctor comes in. He says, your numbers are indicative of cancer. And I just, like, what? He's 20, 26. And I was like, man, I mean, my mom died of cancer. My dad died of cancer. I hear cancer, and it's a death sentence in my mind. And um, we went through some hard, some hard times there, understanding what is, what is happening? What is happening? And we came to a point where Ray and I had to keep coming back to this idea that my greatest need is actually not health. My greatest need is not to have my husband here with me or my parents. My greatest need is not financial security or whatever. Fill in the blank of what your need is. That's not my greatest need. My greatest need is Jesus, and I have him. But we have to fight to hold on to that, right? 
That's not something that I just always have the joy of the Lord. I've, I have to fight for that. I have to fight for that. Thankfully, the Lord once again interceded with, his, with kindness, and you know, Ray does not have the same prognosis as my parents. He's able to take oral chemotherapy that, that manages his cancer, and, and we praise God for that, but it's still, every doctor's visit, every time we fill his medicine, we come back to this thought of, my greatest need is Jesus, and I have him. I praise him for medicine, but my greatest need is Jesus, and I have him. And so that, I think, first and foremost, is what we have to come back to. But then, there's all these other broken pieces. What do we do with it, right? What do we do with all the rest of these broken pieces? Um, well, here's some things I want us to look at. The other broken pieces of our life stories are a part of God's bigger story of redemption for his people. Let me say it again. The other broken pieces of our life stories are still a part of God's bigger story of redemption for his people. So let me flesh that out a little bit with some thoughts here. First of all, our trials are a part of God's bigger plan to save sinners and bring him glory. No trial is wasted, and I believe this with all my heart. I, when I look at the book of Ruth, and this is where this story was preached to me in the middle of my dad's battle with cancer, and when I sat back and thought about the fact of these women going through these trials with all the, this death and destruction in their lives, they had no idea that years later, generations later, Jesus was coming, and he came because of all these broken pieces that lined up together perfectly so that Jesus can come, right? So God orchestrated all these pieces so that Jesus can come and be our redeemer. And I'm not saying that my offspring is going to somehow lead to another redeemer. We already have our ultimate redeemer. But I can stop and say, what if these different broken pieces of my life are somehow being orchestrated together in a way that, is, that God is using to bring sinners to himself. He, when Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. So what he accomplished for us was finished, but he is still in the process of drawing sinners to himself, and we are part of that process, and my broken pieces are part of that process. I believe that. I might not see how, and I might not know, but I can trust that there's something else at work here other than what I can physically see. And so some other passages of scripture I can, I can look to. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. Um, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so that's another reminder I have to keep bringing myself back to. Like, what I see is not always reality. There is a bigger reality beyond this that God is working and orchestrating because he is a God of redemption and he is working out his plan to save sinners. And my story somehow connects to that. Somehow connects to that. Um, Romans 8, 28, all things work together. This is a, a you know, very popular passage. All things work together for good for those who love God. I think also of my favorite passage is Psalm 34, um, that no good thing does he withhold from those that seek him. And so I've spent a lot of time looking at that word good. Like, what does that word good mean? And I've had to redefine it. I've had to redefine it according to what God thinks good is versus what my good is, because my good is comfort. <laughs> my good is health. My good is convenience, you know? But God's good is his glory and my ultimate good, which I don't even know, I don't even know what my ultimate good is, but he does. He does. And so I have to come back to the fact that my God is both good and sovereign. 
But he is both good and sovereign, and I can rest in that even when I look at all these broken pieces. The next thing about my broken pieces is often God uses our trials or our broken pieces for our own sanctification. So oftentimes, it's within those moments of desperation that we cry out to God, and God does a work within us, and he changes us. So even though positionally I'm already righteous before God because of Christ, I'm still stuck in this flesh on this earth. And so I have to work out that salvation like Philippians 2 talks about. And so I'm working out that salvation in my day. It's not just something that magically happens to me. It often happens through the grittiness of life. And by God taking us through hard things, using his word, using people to come alongside us, and we are changed into an image that more closely resembles Christ, oftentimes because of these hard things. Once again, I might not even understand how all of that happens, Right? But I can trust that he who began a good work in me is bringing that to completion. And so all of these pieces are part of that. Now, the next point I want to make is this. We also have to be careful not to think that God is punishing me for my sin. So sanctification is different from God punishing me for my sin. Now, there's a such thing as natural consequences. So if I make terrible financial decisions, I might find myself in financial ruin. That's a natural consequence of my sin, right? Totally different from me saying something like, man, I messed up, I was immoral in their circumstance, and so, you know, 10 years later, my grandma dies, and that's God punishing me for my sin. Christ took the punishment for my sin. I can't atone for my sin. I can't atone for my sin, because the wages of sin is death, my death and eternal separation from God forever. I can't atone for my sin. So God is not punishing me for my sin. And I have to get that. Otherwise, it's easy for me to look at God and think that he's cruel and that he's punishing me. No, God is good. And he is just. And he is a wrathful God, but he poured his wrath on Jesus because of my sin. And so I can rest in that. The final thing, the final thing about my broken pieces is this. I can rest in the unknown. I can rest in the unknown. Because my God is good, because he's sovereign, it's okay that I don't know how all these pieces fit together. It's okay that I don't see maybe how he's sanctifying me. It's okay if there's a trial that I don't see some big like eternal reward happening. Like I'm fortunate that I can look at my mom's cancer and be like, man, God did good from that. Like I'm fortunate that I can see that. But it wasn't until my dad's cancer and Ray's leukemia that we stopped. We looked at the book of Job. And we're like, you know what? <laughs> you don't always get the answers, right? You don't always get the answers, and that's okay. So if you're familiar with the book of Job, Job goes through horrendous trials in his life. He loses all his loved ones, goes through sickness, you know, loses all his possessions. And he keeps asking God, why? Like, why is this happening? And it was always, like, very dissatisfying to me in the end that God doesn't tell him why. He doesn't say, well, Satan came to me in the beginning, and I'm testing you. Like, he doesn't actually tell him why. How does he answer Job? He answers Job with God's character. He says, where were you when I created all this? He, he causes Job to come to a place, and it's extensive, and it, it goes over the course of two chapters, but God, maybe three, um, God answers Job according to God's character, and he brings Job back to who God is. He doesn't say, hey, this is how all these broken pieces came. This is how I'm putting them together. 
And more often than not, that's where I find myself, in a place where I'm like, man, I can't make sense of these pieces. I really want to. Like, my brain just really wants to take these pieces and figure out why. Like, okay, this happened, but then I see God did this, and like, okay, I can like wrap it up in this neatly wrapped package and move on, right? It still might be hard, but I can make sense of it. But here's the thing, we can't always do that. We can't always do that. And I have to understand that that's that's okay. You know, when Ray and I were in that hospital room, just looking at each other like, what is going on? I remember God very sweetly speaking to us through the book of Job and being like, hey guys, just look at me, look at my character, and just rest, just rest in that. And so here, I don't know where you are today with your broken pieces, but um, I, would, I, hope, I hope that we can stop for a moment and come back to the character of God come back to the character of God and let that bring rest and peace to your soul. My last application point is this. Maybe you're like, doing great, don't have any broken pieces, um, which is probably none of us. (laughs) But um, there for sure are so many stories of people around us with broken pieces. And even coming to share this message today was very weighty on my heart, just knowing different people in our own church body and the things that they're experiencing. Um, so my final question is, is this, are we being used by God to intercede and to interrupt the stories of brokenness of those around us? Even if you're in the midst of your own broken stories, it doesn't mean it's like you're either or, you know, it's like either things are hard or they're not. If they're not, then help the people that are hard. Like sometimes we're in the middle of our own broken pieces, but God can still use you as a conduit of his kindness to interrupt the stories of others. And so in conclusion, I want you to just have a few minutes left. If you have your notes, um, this is something that's helped me a lot. Um, If you have your notes, just take a minute as I kind of wrap things up to think through, all right, where, where am I at with all this? Like where, what are the broken pieces that I'm struggling with? Ask God to reveal like what's going on in my heart. Lord, what am I not believing to be true about your character? And for me, I have to, like, I have to journal these things down, and I have to come back to truth, because my heart is wicked above all things and desperately wicked, and my emotions tell me one thing, but God's truth tells me something else. And so my hope today and my prayer for us as women is that we will come to Scripture. What, what do you need to hold on to to help you make sense? Not even make sense, but help you rest in the midst of the broken pieces of your story. Sisters, I don't know where you're at or what you're going through, but I do know this, that God is good and God is sovereign and he has given you your greatest need, which is Christ. And he wants to use us to intercede on behalf of others. And so just take a few moments. What is it that you need to hold on to? What truth? You know, I, I have to, especially going through some of my trials of the past, and I, we all have our own stories. You know, for me, it was cancer. For you, it might be something with finances. It might be something relational. Um, whatever it is, I have to stop, and I have to journal. Okay, God, I know that you are this. I know that you are this. I know that you are this because I see it in Scripture. And then look at parts of my life in the past and connect some of those dots. Like, God, I, I, yeah, I did. I did see that you were faithful in this circumstance. I did see how you did this. And I, I just have to, you know, psalm, the psalmist does it all the time, like looking back at what God has done and letting that give me encouragement for now and for the future. And so as we look at the broken pieces of our life, I hope that 
that this is encouraging to us. I hope that this is something where we can walk out of here confidently because we know that the broken pieces of our stories are not in vain, that they are part of God's bigger story of redemption, and that God is good and God is sovereign. Let me pray for us, and then we'll head out. Lord, I thank you for your love and your goodness, um, God, and just how you orchestrate um, all things for your glory and for our good. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us believe that. Lord, no matter where we're at, um, no matter what we're experiencing right now, whether it's just difficulty with children at home or medical bills or finances, Lord, or um, whatever the story is for these ladies, Lord, I pray that you will um, help us to see your goodness, help us to rest in your character, and then, Lord, help us to be conduits of your kindness to others. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you.